for coming so much. I'm very honored to be here today and uh, very happy to talk about the state of women in STEM and why well-formed women are really necessary for the advancement of the field and how we can integrate um, and promote our girls, specifically at Oakcrest, to kind of enter that STEM field and why they need to be there so badly. Um, so the first thing I want to do is said, go through a little exercise. Has anyone heard of warm fuzzies and cold pricklies before? Like, you know, you get a warm fuzzy. So I'm going to start out with a couple of cold pricklies. Like, there's some information I'm going to give you and some questions I'm going to ask that might make you feel a little bit uncomfortable. Um, but then hopefully by the end, it's going to be uh, all warm fuzzies. So <laughs> the first question I want you to kind of think about and answer um, is to think about the first time that you failed at something, like really felt real, raw failure. Um, was it a grade on a test? A feeling when you let your parents down when you were young? Um, maybe, a maybe you were assigned a responsibility that you realistically couldn't undertake? In a sport, you know, so this is very first time, way back when, um, maybe you're given an opportunity, opportunity in a sport, you struck out, missed the corner kick, um, missed the qualifying time by a second. Um, no doubt, the feeling was uncomfortable, right? Nobody likes to fail. Nobody likes to feel like they failed at something. Um, it's terrifying to feel that despite what you thought, uh, it's not enough, right? It's not enough that you can't, that you, that you didn't do what you set out to do. Um, but then something inside of us rebounds. We learn after a couple of times that it's not the end, right? That there is more, that no matter how big the failure is, uh, there is purpose and there's something greater, right? We can begin again. Um, there is hope. So undeniably, we try again, or we allow ourselves to be made vulnerable again that same way and be open to that option of failure again. And that's a good thing. That displays growth, right? So repeated failure, even when we're made uncomfortable again, we learn how to deal with it um, and how to overcome it so we can achieve and grow. And the reason I want to bring up this idea of failure, we'll see later on and I'll refer to it, that we have to think of this as a, as a stepping stone of growth. Because this is one of the big things for especially women to overcome. Um, and women in science is that feeling of, well, I didn't get it the first time. I must not be good at it. And therefore, I'm just going to set it off. And I'm going to refer to this a few times in different variations uh, throughout the talk. But this is something that's kind of a big uh, stepping, a big wall, a big brick for us to overcome. Um, in the future as well. And so what can we do here and also in our families, in our homes, and uh, how can we also at Oakcrest support this idea of hope and growth mindset and growing stronger through our failures. Um, so we are called, the purpose of growth, then what is it, right? We as humans are called to know more about ourselves, to grow deeper in our relationship with God and to discover more about nature in order to better live in harmony with it. Um, however, we as women, as women of conscience and women aware of truth, have been left out of a conversation that is really desperate for our voice, um, the well-formed voice of reason in science and technology. And today I want to discuss this 
really in uh, three acts to hopefully stimulate some discussion on a topic that drives my personal vocation as a mother, as a scientist, and as a teacher, and as a member of the community. Um, first, I want to give you a little background on my own personal experience in science and what drove me to pursue the topics I studied fervently and loved um, in order to lead into my second act, which is the current state of women in science and technology and in the STEM fields. And then I want to offer some practical ideas and urgings uh, for the engagement of especially well-formed women in science uh, and an appreciation for the discovery of and the uses for technology as we move forward. All right, so personally, why did I go into science, right? One day, right, this was me kind of thinking junior high, even before junior high, uh, one of my favorite things to do when I was a child was to go outside in the springtime and look at all the beautiful flowers. I love spring uh, and I love to smell them. That stop and smell the flowers, I was like, yes, you should always stop and smell the flowers. Let's appreciate what's going on, um, you know, really look at nature and, and learn to be in awe of it, really. Um, and one of the small gifts I kept on my dresser, and I was given kind of one of those tchotchkes that you get, was, you know, a little empty perfume bottle. And so um, one of those, like, glass and iridescent blue, and it had a little mesh bulb. And uh, when I was young, I knew that I was not old enough for perfume, but I decided that maybe I could make my own perfume. So I took some of those flowers that were outside in front of our house, the ones that smelled really good, and I would take one of those Stouffer's lasagna empty plastic containers, and I would take them, I have to kind of mix them together and put the, put the water in there and just kind of let them sit because I was going to make my own perfume. So naturally, this was kind of one of my first words. You know, my mom didn't really appreciate the whole you know, extraction experience of making your own perfume when you're young, but um, I, I thought it was so much fun. So, you know, these were my first experiments when I was a child. My mom was less thrilled about them at that point. Um, I love to cook. I love to get into the kitchen and kind of when I was finally allowed to do that, uh, I learned I just loved working with my hands. Um, I loved doing anything with my hands in high school anything where I, thri I thrived in classes where we had discussions, where we had to critically think, and I loved facing challenges head on, right? I loved the challenge, and I loved to say, okay, how can we go with this challenge head on? Um, and every year at the end of every school year, I would just marvel at all of the things you learn throughout just a short period of time in a year, right? In a year of high school, in a year of junior high, in a year of uh, even elementary school, I was like, wow, we learned so much, and I just constantly felt that thirst to learn more. Um, I also recognized that facing a challenge, I needed to be in a place where I could freely move. I always played sports, and I love being outside. I love doing things where I am active. So being in a place that was kind of sitting behind a desk was not going to be for me. Um, so all of these things where I could explore, I could discuss and think critically, science was a natural fit. Um, my parents are not scientists. They're both you know, in the economics and political science background. They love the news and everything. That we, I love it too, but they were, they're very much into it. They actually um, met when they were both here in Washington, and then we moved to Ohio before moving to Illinois, and now I'm back here. Um, <laughs> I've come full circle. Um, my mom loves coming to visit uh, because they were so involved in the Washington sort of uh, 
the community. Um, but they always, when I was young, they challenged us. And they, you know, my dad always, he always won at the games, the board games at home. We were never, we never won. He said that, you know, he challenged us to win. One time my sister was close to winning a risk game. She had had my dad down to three people and she decided to, you know, give him a little bit of mercy. And of course, three hours later, he had ruled the world. So, you know, he tossed a lot of humility through those acts as well. We, uh, through this and through softball, um, learning perseverance and how to work with a team, I, I learned these values and um, learned mental toughness and it prepared me well for the career I ultimately pursued as well. Um, my high school experience was fairly different from that of here at Oakcrest. I went to a very big public high school, um, co-ed, and I graduated from a class of 800 students I saw my guidance counselor maybe once in four years, uh, and I was exposed to various ideas from the culture, but the, the strong values that I had from my family allowed me to engage in discussion about those values with my peers and my worldview with my peers, and through questioning and understanding, um, it led me more, you know, a higher development of my faith, and I really it strengthened it, as well as my curiosity for the understanding of the world around me. My school was very strong in math, and I was one of the few female students keenly aware of my female status in my math class. And when we had group quizzes, uh, prior to our, our math class, we would have a group quiz, an individual quiz, and then a test. We'd have maybe two of those group and individual quizzes. Um, and during those in group quizzes, before I was really allowed to contribute by my peers, I had to kind of prove myself by those test scores from previously. So, you know, showing, saying, oh yes, what did you get on that test? Or they'd say, what did you, you know, oh, I did well, I did, I did great, I got a 93. Oh, so did I, and they would just be kind of shocked. No, it was a big surprise uh, that, that the minority was, wow, okay, well maybe she does know something. Um, so being able to face that head on right from the start and kind of understanding that that might be the attitude towards me as I move forward. I was prepared for that as well. Um, in graduate school, uh, in, in undergraduate school, I engaged in many professional societies as well as groups devoted to developing my faith life, but I found that times uh, in those groups of developing my faith life, uh, there were many, uh, it was rare to find many who are gonna be on that same path because I knew I wanted to go to graduate school uh, for biomedical sciences and just trying to find other like people who are in the similar path was, was difficult. Um, in graduate school, I was very blessed. I found, uh, you know, it was, it was definitely an act of God that the, uh, my roommate was a coworker of mine who was also a Catholic uh, graduate school in my program, graduate student in my program, probably the only other one in our program, maybe one of the other only one in the biology program. <laughs> And she is actually my connection to Oakcrest. So I am incredibly grateful for her. We are still very good friends. During the last few years of graduate school, sorry, a few months of graduate school, I became a mother. And I also became uh, keenly aware of the prejudices, not only of just women in science, uh, but also of those of working mothers in academia. Um, the good news is that it's not all bad news. 
Uh, larger percentages of women have been entering, especially the biomedical field, and there is an overall push for a women to enter STEM fields and increase the diversity uh, in the workplace. Because overall, increased diversity, especially the inclusion of women in the STEM field, is going to lead to greater accomplishments and progress. And this has been shown through several studies in business and other places where they've started this integration and really promoting women in these fields. Um, and when we can look at and look at what progress will really mean for the future in a bit. Um, right now, I kind of want to then transition, right? That was my story. What is the current state for the STEM fields now uh, for women and some of the views and oppositions that they still encounter? Uh, and first, I want to start off with a state, look at the state of STEM and the cultural draw for women into or out of STEM fields. So sort of the idea that culture puts out there for women in STEM fields and the reasons that they exist. Um, and then I also want to look at the way that men particularly interact with women in STEM fields and the ways that women interact with each other in STEM fields. And hopefully these kind of three distinctions will provide some insight on where we've been, what's been done historically, and where we need to go in the future. Um, so the first one is the current state of women of STEM, uh, women in the field of STEM. So several studies have shown, again, that diver increased diversity in the workplace is going to allow for increased progress. So it's necessary for women to be at the table. It's necessary for women to be at all levels, not just those entry levels, is kind, which is kind of where they more primarily are at right now. Um, thus, the inclusion of the proportion of women in STEM fields should be uh, high to ensure the most creative and diverse solutions possible that are being brought to the table on the most pressing issues in STEM, which today there are a lot of very, you know, current issues where the voice of women needs to be heard. Um, however, there's no denying that women are underrepresented in the STEM fields. The numbers can be staggering at times. Uh, yesterday I saw something in, in the lines of, in a normal workplace, it's 41% you know, women. In the STEM fields, it's about 24%. So in you know, three out of four people working in STEM are men. Uh, the numbers uh, in academia are especially uh, staggering. And in fact, there are more women entering STEM fields but in biomedical sciences, but less in the physical and computer science and engineering. Um, so even though they're entering, though, there are far fewer staying in the field. And this reason is, is there are many reasons, really. This is called the holes in the pipelines model, um, where frequently women are dropping out of research or academia or altogether out of the workforce during their postdoc years, which tends to happen uh, also somewhat during their childbearing years as well. Um, and this is a number of reasons, again, because the academic workload and, um, to say, lack thereof pay scale remains uh, less than family friendly compared to many benefits in industry. So there is a higher inclusion of women in industry because they provide more benefits. And those benefits tend to be more uh, compliant to both the laws that are set up and just a lot more friendly towards working mothers. So they have things like nursing rooms give much more uh, maternity leave. For example, my husband, he works in industry right now, and he was given paternity leave. So that was excellent. This shows you know value of the family. They actually set up um, napping pods in their workplace as well to kind of understand that those are for mothers who are transitioning from coming off of maternity leave and coming back into the workplace, kind of understanding that they probably will need a rest. <laughs> um, uh, but this is you know, a very optimistic 
uh, place. But there are, there are many in industry. So industry is a wonderful place for working mothers. Um, however, in certain workplaces, there are inherent bias against working mothers who will often opt for optional team bonding during after hours or otherwise social events that are essential for networking and advancing in their career. So um, even though they're not required, women are missing out on them, especially ones who are working mothers you know, much at a much higher incidence than, say, working fathers. Uh, current research has also shown that while women at this stage might give up the promotion to spend the extra time with their families. So at some, in some ways, it's self-selecting. Um, and they are okay with this. Like women are very happy with this idea of self-selecting. I have friends who've actually done this. Who they'll say, you know, I, you know, they'll, and they'll be mentoring somebody who's an intern, and they'll say, well, why don't why don't you want to go for the promotion? Why do you want to do this? And they said, you know, I just had my second kid. I'm really okay with really being in a very high position to start with, and you know, saying, you know, I, I just want to spend some more time at home right now because I have two young kids who I want to be with, which is a wonderful thing. And her job is okay with that. That's a wonderful uh, way of, of pursuing the career. Um, but there is, you know, academia must still follow suit in promoting women and the family in general. Um, but as with women, families continue to fight for the time with their families and break ground. So academics, um, in academia, it's very work hard all the time, and there is a lot of uh, discouraging stories that come out of academia specifically because of the nature of just you're always working and if you're not working then you're going to fall behind so um, and there is you know not necessarily a spoken bias but there when people interview you know they have certain rules they're supposed to adhere to that sometimes are not adhered to and they kind of know this um, so just kind of enforcing those rules and how do they, how do we get those rules enforced? And really the answer is by getting more women in those positions and getting them to enforce those rules because it's going to be hard when you're not represented to be able to enforce that. Um, so in addition to these kind of different structures, I just kind of want to kind of bring up that idea of failure again. So. You're, it's wonderful, you're a woman, you've reached that position, they've gone through academia, um, they're high achieving women, a lot of them, a lot of people in STEM are very high achievers, but there's always this idea of doubt. So there's this syndrome that you may or may not have heard of, it's called the imposter syndrome. Anyone heard of the imposter syndrome? All right, the imposter syndrome kind of goes a little something like this, is that the fear that even though you have continued achievement, that someone will find out that you're actually a fraud, right? So it's this idea that, oh, I just don't think that I'm ever going to be good enough. People may find out what I don't know and think that I'm just totally a fraud, right? And women tend to suffer from this much more than men. There's a much higher incidence because, especially in science, it's a skeptics community. So they're constantly asking you things. And if you have this one fault, then all of a sudden, everything you know is discounted, or you have this fear that everything is gonna be discounted. So even though they may be high achieving, they may have everything on their resume that says that they'll be able to succeed in the next step, they don't feel like they're gonna be able to achieve this next step, so they don't even try. All right, so a lot of women opt out for different types of careers, or some of them call them alternate. They're not really alternate because 90% of the women who graduate with PhDs, or 90% of people in general, 
don't go on in academia, right? There's only a 10% uh, retention rate. Um, so fighting imposter syndrome and promoting women at, at every stage, especially the later stages, is still kind of one thing that is left to be achieved. So something that we need to promote, it's great we're getting women into science in the younger years, now how do we get them to stay? And how do we give them different constructs to allow them to stay in during these, these years when they're making difficult decisions? Which are all good decisions to make. All right, so along with what they're facing just from the culture, um, there's this unique dynamic for women in, in STEM, and that's with, of course, men, right? Because culturally, historically, men have uh, intentionally excluded and not included women in science. So some of the societies, the royal societies that were set up in London and Paris and in Berlin in the 1700s, 1800s, where they would sh share higher thought and higher order thinking and the different discoveries that were being made, they would purposefully exclude women. So in this, you know, of course, started to change in the early 1900s through the 1930s, 1950s. Um, but these, these types of feelings and types of thoughts that women don't really belong here are still echoed in some cases. Um, and I, and it's, it's that feeling along with just kind of the, the blatant comments that are made to women, um, in my own personal experience, I've had some wonderful male peers, most notably my husband. Uh, it's been great to be able to come home to him and we, we talk about, and he still talks to me about different strategies we're using at work, um, and some great mentors. But I've also have encountered uh, from groups I've been in or from invited speakers that we've invited to campus before. Um, there are some of the comments they've made and some of just the things they say have described and demonstrated that sexism is alive and well in uh, some of these places. So it's not, it's, it's definitely there. The current sort of um, coming out of a lot of these instances and finally women being heard, I don't know, probably everyone's been paying attention this year to, to kind of all of these high-powered men finally being held accountable for these actions um, is really kind of an embracing of, like, like finally. Uh, some of the things that you, you can go online and look at some of the things that have been said at conferences and places where it's, it's supposed to be a very professional uh, discussion and it's just completely inappropriate. Um, but, uh, and, you know, of course no one wants to come out and say anything when these comments are made because these are, you know, Nobel laureates, to be honest. You know, they're high achieving men who have earned their way where they are, and they have tenure, they're, they've been there forever, and they just they don't wanna have anybody second guess them. If, they, you know, if you're held responsible for it, then that's gonna most affect your career and not theirs. All right, so it's just kind of allowed to happen. So again, how do we stop this from happening? Getting more people who are there in that room being able to say this is not really acceptable. All right. Even uh, in 2005, so this was you know, a while ago, but not that long ago, the president of Harvard uh, echoed some uh, doubts in, two, in his address where he um, suggested that women have a less intrinsic aptitude in the scientific fields. All right, so this is just kind of examples of very public statements that have been made where you know, it's, it's completely unacceptable, but again, it's just not 
question. You know, it's outrageous. <laughs> um, so the permissibility it just comes from an antiquated attitude and an underdeveloped conscience and usually an underdeveloped social skill yet, as well as the immunity to consequences. So we need to, again, be there and be present in order to kind of be the ones in the room to say, you know, I really don't accept this. I really don't think this is appropriate. And to fight for that, because without that, it's not going to go away easily. I'd say that in the generations younger, I used to think that it was completely gone, right? So I was like, oh, well, the current, the, the postdocs around me were all very uh, equal. They don't think that anything is different. And then I had um, someone come in, a male trainee come in, uh, into the lab who was a, a postdoc, so he had just finished his, grad, his undergraduate and was coming for a year and just working in the lab to kind of get some grounds and get some experience. And, you know, he was asking some of the other postdocs, the male postdocs, okay, you know, uh, how do I do this technique or what does this mean? And asking them questions and asking them for advice. And they were saying, you know, I really, you know, I'm not the expert on that. You should really ask Kat. And he just straight up refused to talk to me about it. Um, and he would, would instead go to the other men in the room. And so I didn't think that it was still there, but there is. And someone pointed out to me when I was um, in one of the training sessions for uh, teaching science, uh, science, science is teaching science, was what it was called. And they say, what are you going to be called in your classroom? And I said, you know, I don't really think, I think it might be actually a little bit presumptuous for, uh, you know, for making the, the students to call me doctor. And they said, you think that that might be true, but unfortunately, if you're in a large lecture room or if you're in a, a room with a lot of, uh, that's populated by a lot of men, then they will think less of you and they will treat you like you are lesser and not think that you have the authority to teach them or the knowledge to teach them. So you need to put on your syllabus what you want to be called. So that was a point and then that was well taken. Um, so it is true, it's, it's, it's still alive and well. Getting more women in there is really just gonna be the answer. And just to say and stand up for yourself and say this is not appropriate. Um, so even though this classical entertainment of kind of unwelcomeness is a little bit prevalent in the academic side of STEM fields where it remains male dominated, again, in places like industry where it's much more welcoming, where there are more women, it's much more, uh, it is much more welcoming and, and women feel more comfortable and are just have a better working relationship, I'd say, with the men that they uh, are working with. Um, the last kind of part of this is the women and women. So although larger percentages have been entering fields in science, one of the main issues, again, is retention in the fields. And not just uh, retention in the fields, but also then as we're fighting for fair laws and fighting with, you know, just fighting for being heard, there's also kind of the fighting within the female community. And we kind of all know this. We are here because we have their teenage daughters or teachers. We know that they're, if you've ever seen Mean Girls or Red Queen Bees and Wannabes and all of these social interactions, uh, you experience the climate of underdeveloped female sociological interactions. And you know that there are camps of women who like to advance by preventing others from advancing, um, at times based on reasoning that's totally you know, unacceptable or just not even there. So unfortunately, this does happen in the workplace. And so how do we get people who are going to be there to stop this? 
right? To say, we need to work together and band together as women. How can we provide an example? So we're really lucky. I like to say I, I love being here at Oakcrest because we have a professional climate that although we are mostly female, um, it's incredible. Everyone is supporting everybody else. Everyone wants what's best for everybody. And the professional environment here is, is a model climate, right? Um, it's something that we can really share and it's something that's really great for your daughters to see that there are women here who want the best for them, that they are here because they want to all be here and they want your daughters to succeed. They want everyone to develop soci socially, spiritually, uh, academically, and uh, they all work well together. So seeing that there can be a group of women who works well together and pushes to make each other better people is a, a beautiful example because it can exist. I mean, we've all probably been in places where that doesn't exist and it can be miserable, right? It can be miserable. <laughs> um, so getting to see this climate and be participate in it and to know that this can happen and to have this model is, is wonderful. So show them this, this teachers, are not just here, we're here to teach you the things that you're seeing, but also the things that you're not seeing, right? Um, I'm constantly, again, impressed by this, and uh, this example of female cooperativity is essential for advancement of all women in all workplaces as they learn how to be resilient in the face of adversity as they're facing these negative attitudes of others, these other steps from uh, the culture and, and this attitude, uh, they, they're not, you know, supposed to be here or they're not desired to succeed. So we need this type of model workplace. We need more students to see it and we need the students to then go ahead and be examples themselves. And that's one of the most exciting things is that they have now the, able, the ability to go out there and to do this. They know what it looks like, they have it, they see it's possible, right? Once you see it's possible, you know it can happen. Um, so this again, okay, we need women, we need women because we need them to be present. But why do we need well-formed women in science, right? There seems to be mounting opposition. There seems to be all very discouraging. Like pricklies again, right? <laughs> but I hope that shedding some of this light can help us turn a page in this history of women in science and help use our natural gifts as women, as builders of relationships and valuing the communion of humans and as the trustees of humanity to improve and solve some of the largest challenges that we have in the STEM field. Right, several popes have uh, recognized that there's great work in what scientists do. So I have a couple of uh, quotes from some of the encyclicals. The first one's from uh, uh, Don Paul II in his encyclical on faith and reason, where he says, finally, I cannot uh, fail to address the wor a word to scientists who, whose research offers an even greater knowledge of the universe as a whole and of the incredibly rich array of its component parts animate and inanimate, with their complex atomic and molecular structures. So far, science has come, especially in this century, that its achievements never cease to amaze us. In expressing my admiration and offering encouragement to these brave pioneers of scientific research, to whom humanity owes much of its current development, I would urge them to continue their efforts without ever abandoning the sapiential horizon within which scientific and technological advancements are wedded to the philosophical and ethical values which are the distinctive and indelible mark of the human person. Scientists are well aware that the search for truth 
even when it concerns a finite reality of the world or of man, is never-ending, but always points beyond something higher than the immediate object of study to the questions which give us access to mystery. Thus, to question the world around us is necessary, worthwhile, and good. But in our current state and rate at which science is advancing, we need a group of diverse individuals, including women, who understand these philosophical and ethical issues to be present to advise and direct the paths which scientists take to implement new technologies, making them purposeful and productive. One such necessity was recently addressed in the encyclical from Pope Francis, Laudato Si, on, uh, on care of our common home, where he highlights the necessities for well-formed scientists to help direct our approaches in technology and warning what may come if we do not incorporate values and conscience into our use of technology. And he writes, this is a little bit long, just wanted to warn you, but it's so excellent. I had a hard time paring, parsing down what I wanted to use. Um, humanity has entered a new era in which our technical prowess has brought us to a crossroads. It is right to rejoice in these advances and to be excited by the immense possibilities which they continue to open up before us. For science and technology are wonderful products of a God-given human creativity. The modification of nature for useful purposes has distinguished the human family from the beginning. Technology itself expresses the inner tension that impels man gradually to overcome material limitations. Technology has remedied countless evils which used to harm and limit human beings. How can we not feel gratitude and appreciation for this progress, especially in the fields of medicine, engineering, and communications? How can we not acknowledge the work of many scientists and engineers who have provided alternatives to make development sustainable? Technoscience, when well-directed, can produce important means of improving the quality of human life. From useful domestic appliances to great transportation systems, bridges, buildings, and public spaces. It, also produce, it can also produce art and enable men and women immersed in the material world to leap into the world of beauty. Who can deny beauty who can deny the beauty of an aircraft or a skyscraper? Valuable works of art and music now make use of new technologies. So, in the beauty intended by the one who uses new technical instruments and in the contemplation of such beauty, a quantum leap occurs, resulting in a fulfillment which is uniquely human. We have to accept that technological products are not neutral, for they create a framework which ends up conditioning lifestyles and shaping social possibilities along the lines dictated by the interests of certain powerful groups. Decisions which may seem purely instrumental are in reality decisions about the kind of society we want to build. There is also the fact that people no longer, to, no longer seem to believe in a happy future. They no longer have blind trust in a better tomorrow based on the present state of the world and our technical abilities. There is a growing awareness that scientific and technological progress cannot be equated with the progress of humanity and history a growing sense that the way a better future lies the way to a better future lies elsewhere this is not to reject the possibilities which technology continues to offer us but humanity has changed profoundly and the accumulation of constant novelties exalts a superficiality which pulls us in one direction it becomes difficult to pause and recover depth in life if architecture reflects the spirit of an age our megastructures and drab apartment blocks express the spirit of globalized technology, where a constant flood of new products coexists with a tedious monotony. Let us refuse to resign ourselves to this 
and continue to wonder about the purpose and meaning of everything. Otherwise, we would simply legitimate the, pre the present situation and need new forms of escapism to help us endure the emptiness. All of this shows the urgent need for us to move forward in a bold cultural revolution. Science and technology are not neutral. From the beginning to the end of a process, various intentions and possibilities are in play and can take on distinct shapes. Nobody is suggesting a return to the Stone Age, but we do need to slow down and look at a reality in a different way, in a different way to appropriate the positive and sustainable progress which has been made, but also to recover the values and the great goals swept away by our unrestrained delusions of grandeur. Okay, that's all from the encyclical. I honestly cannot imagine more direct calls for well-formed women in science. We, as having the keen eye for beauty, the ones for the call for relationship and care for humanity, we as the holders for humanity within us, are called to engage in this new culture, to be models, and to promote the new culture of technology, one where it benefits humanity, promoting relationship, not tearing it down, not isolating us in a power struggle. We need to internalize the call and promote the values necessary for positive advancement of science and technology, and we need to relate those involved, relate to those involved in making decisions in the field. We need well, more well-formed women at the table. So what can we do? So what can you do as parents, as members of the community, to engage positive responses to STEM and ultimately increasing the involvement of well-formed women in science? All right, so as an exercise for my first day of class in chemistry, I asked them to come up with some words they hear and they associate with chemistry. So in our short 10-minute period, I use the time to identify any misconceptions that they have about the subject as well as their approach to the class. They usually come up with some well-known phrases like the periodic table, atoms, energy, bonds, um, as well as some attitudes. Some of them say it's hard. I've heard it's difficult. I don't think it's going to be for me. I think I'm going to struggle, right? This is before they even take the class, right? This is before they even enter. This is, this is right stepping foot in the door. So my goal in class is not just to teach them the concepts, right, but to hopefully reverse those negative attitudes picked up prior to even stepping foot in that door, right? The first check, again, is with that attitude and towards with the attitude at home, right? In 2015, psychologists at the University of Chicago found that children whose parents had math anxiety that helped their children scored overall lower than, other, than their peers. So the, thus, the negative attitude toward math can be passed down with a simple call, comment like, oh yeah, math is hard, it wasn't really for me, right? Or yikes, I don't think I can help you with that one. Right? So just those negative attitudes, right? Even that can translate into a bias. Right? Speaking positively of math and science at home provides support of students who even entertain an interest in science. Uh, in addition, engaging discussions on ethics as your daughters grow, right? This type of engagement uh, can help them provide thinking space for when they develop, and hopefully uh, there's a helpful, it can be a helpful opportunity to see how their decisions, and as their decisions as scientists as well, may affect others. Embrace the wonders and practice of science as a window into the awe of God's creation. A way to appreciate the beauty of the world that they live in, and as a means to add to the beauty that they see through the original discovery, thought, and synthesis of the patterns they observe in nature. That's what science offers. It's fun, right? You get to do things that people have never done before. 
There are people sending rockets to Pluto, right? That's amazing. It's something that you couldn't even imagine. And you get to come up with all of these things. It can be hard because it involves a lot of thinking. But developing that thinking starts now, right? It starts now. Just let them think and help them think. And your unique education here provides the character development and academic excellence, as well as the relationship with God and ultimately truth. Thus, as they are prepared for the perseverance it takes to pursue science, uh, as well as the ability to thrive and inspire others. Although we live in the land of prosperity and material prosperity at times, science can appear to be a spiritual desert. So it's also an opportunity for them, they may not see it now, but a unique opportunity to evangelize. Right? So it's a way for them to carry their faith to others because they'll meet a lot of people along the way who have dismissed it, right? Smart people don't believe in God. I've heard that one before, right? It's ridiculous. It's silly, right? It's, 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 it's bringing along, it's a mouthpiece of something that is completely false. And it takes a lot of love and a lot of time to reverse that, that, that thought, to be able to say, you know, this may be something you have in your mind, but we need to love you and to get you to see that there is something, there is a real truth. And it's a beautiful thing. And it's wonderful to even just be able to plant the seed because a lot of times there's not even someone there to plant that seed. Um, they'll maybe be, continue to fight that uphill battle and the values, but without the voice of their, again, without their voice, many will never even hear that opposite side. Um, I've engaged in many of these conversations in the workplace as well, right? Uh, and it's been beautiful to just kind of see, well, you know, you get a little nervous talking about it because you know that you are completely the minority, but being able to say something and being able to say it, you know, well, this is, this is what I think. And after they've seen all that you've done and say, well, maybe that, maybe that might be true. Right? That, just, that just idea is something that helps plant the seed and can then grow. So hopefully, this kind of gives you an idea of really the need for well-formed women in STEM. Uh, we need to inform the direction which science and technology go in order to better form our, our cultu cultural values. We need to be aware of these values, what they are, and pers persevere in the field for them. We need our girls to go to battle for science and for our culture. We need to embrace humanity. We need our graduates to show their appreciation for beauty in the world around them, the respect and, and dignity, the respect and the dignity of their fellow man, and the direction for technology to grow and to be able to serve humanity. And it all starts here. All right, so thank you very much for having me, and I hope that you can encourage your daughters to see the beauty in understanding the world around them. Right, I'll take any questions you have, too. Oh, sorry. <laughs> I teach uh, chemistry and honors chemistry in 10th grade.